0: Well, please remain standing and turn with me if you will uh, to Luke chapter 22 uh, if you're using one of the church Bibles uh, that starts on uh, our reading starts on page 882 and on to 883. I'm going to read our passage a little bit out of order this morning I hope that makes sense um, by the end so I'm going to start by just reading verses 47 through 53. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 47. Beloved saints, uh, this is our God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God does remain, abide, and stand forever. And so let us give our attention to the reading of it. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew, near to kiss, he drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and caught off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out against us as a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Since the reading of God's word at this time, let us ask his blessing on our time in it. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to our feet and it is our guide through the dark. Your word is our wisdom, our truth that we follow each day. Your word is sweeter than honey and yet sharper than swords. It is healing and justice and ours to obey. Your word is our understanding of grace, peace, and love, and that is the reason we draw near to it. Speak to us through it, we ask, through Christ our Savior. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. word alone can be a scary word (laughs) now sure yeah there are times where we want just some alone time we just want to uh, have a little bit of solitude to refresh and recharge to sort our thoughts out but to be truly alone abandoned rejected left alone that is something entirely different And that's no secret. One of the most severe forms of punishment used of prisoners over the centuries and millennia is solitary confinement. Just leaving someone alone often results in insanity and complete breaking. To be alone, truly alone, is terrifying. And and yet, the word alone is one of the most important words in our tradition. Our church is named Reformation in honor of the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. And and that, that Reformation and the Protestants were known for these five pithy little statements. Each and every one of those five statements had the word alone in it. Responding to Roman Catholic doctrines that, that mixed works and grace. The Protestants were adamant that salvation was by grace alone. Through faith alone. There's, there's no mixture of, of, of works and grace. There's no mixture of our obedience and faith. And then to make this abundantly clear. The Protestants said that salvation is a work of Jesus Christ alone. Because if salvation depends upon us, even in the smallest way, everything will fall apart. And that truth, that reality, leaves Jesus very alone. That truth is driven home to us in a very profound way in our passage this morning. And and we're going to see as we look at this, that Jesus is willing to be abandoned by all. So that he might not abandon us in our hour of greatest need. He is willing to be abandoned by all, left truly alone, so that he might not abandon us. He's willing to go through the very worst for our sake. And so really, we're going to do three things this morning. We're going to look at at that episode with Judas and see Jesus betrayed by Judas. Then we're going to see him abandoned by Peter. And then we're going to see him willing to bear the weight of the world alone. If that's what it takes to save us as he prays on the Mount of Olives. So that's our our plan this morning. And I'm going to do this a bit out of order on purpose. Because I want to end our time. I want to conclude with Jesus' prayer on the Mount of Olives. Uh, uh, Other gospel writers call it uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. But I want to start with that well-known episode of betrayal by Judas. And as we look at it, I want to note that there are four distinct actions that take place in these few verses. And just make a few comments on each. Uh, It's so easy to get caught up uh, in, in what goes on with Judas and that kiss that we might miss what happens at the end. The chief priests and the officers are there with him and they're holding clubs and swords and Jesus points out that they have come to him in the night even though Jesus has been with them day after day out in the open for all to see they wait for the cover of darkness to approach him and they come armed acting like he's this great threat this is what sin does It despises the light. It seeks out the darkness. Because they know what they're doing is evil. and, And they're ashamed of themselves. If they weren't, they'd do it in broad daylight in front of everyone. But they act like he's the danger. Like he's the problem. And Jesus' only response is that they represent the power of darkness. But he says, and this is your hour. He's saying that he will allow them to prevail, but for a short time. A definite period, a short period of time. That he will give himself over to the powers of darkness. And that darkness in the the chief priests and the elders is mirrored in Judas in the opening of our passage. He, he, He comes and he kisses Jesus. A kiss is an act of love. He comes as if he's a friend. ...but it's deceptive and his kiss is a cover for evil. He doesn't just cloak his treachery in darkness, he cloaks it in an act of love. That kiss is is a greater act of violence than the clubs and the swords of the priests and the elders. But make no mistake, his heart is filled with murder alone... Years at Jesus' side. Years of of hearing the truth. Years of witnessing firsthand the greatest love the world has ever known. And his response is murder, treachery, deceit. There's never been a betrayal prior or since in the history of the world like this one right here. We shouldn't be surprised... Jesus warned us that that one of his own would betray him. He told us to prepare for violence. What's surprising, or at least improper, is the response of the other disciples. One of them pulled out a sword and cut off the ear of of the high priest's servant. You don't usually aim for the ear think he was aiming for something else and hit the ear but do you see what's happened the disciples think that Jesus needs them to protect him they think that that they must raise up swords in order to advance his kingdom Trying to advance the kingdom of mercy and grace at the end of a sword is as nonsensical as committing murder with a kiss. Swords are for people like Judas, the priests, and the officers. They are not tools of evangelism. Now, please don't... uh, Misunderstand what I'm saying. I, I'm not saying that Christians should just endure every kind of abuse. That wives, that children, that, that people aren't, aren't free to protect themselves against violence. That's, that's not what I'm saying, not at all. What I'm saying is that the gospel of salvation is not advanced through military or political force. Following Jesus is a matter of the heart and no sword can subdue a heart. Only love can. And that's what we see modeled in the fourth and final act in this episode. We've got the, the chief priest coming with swords. We've got Judas coming with a kiss. We see the disciples wielding a sword. What does Jesus do? Knowing full well why these people are here and what they're about to do, he reaches out and he heals the man's ear. He showed kindness to his enemy. He he healed one who was there to hurt him. That's who he is. He is the God who shows kindness to his enemies. Isn't that the heart of the Christian message? Isn't that what we read in Romans? It tells us, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly... For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good one, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. While we were enemies, he showed us kindness. Jesus didn't just do this to help the man. Sure, that was part of it. But but also to show his disciples how they were to respond to antagonism. That they were to overcome evil with good. So let's go on and read the next section, verses 54 through 62. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. And then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But, Peter, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and how he had said, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. If the situation with Judas is tragic, this episode with Peter is heartbreaking. What's recorded in verses 54 through 62 is one of the greatest failures in history. And it's Peter, Peter, Peter's just different. On the one hand, he seems to get more than the other disciples get. He's the one who fell at, at Jesus' feet in chapter 5, saying, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. He he understood the, the holiness of Christ in his own need. He, he's the one who, who recognized Jesus to be the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's the one who declared his undying love for Jesus and his willingness to suffer death for him if that's what was necessary. That's Peter. But Peter's also the one whom the Lord... Warned epic failure was coming. And Peter's response was to rebuke his Lord. Jesus warned him that a great test was coming and to pray so that he might not fall into temptation. And Peter's response was to take a nap. And as Jesus is led away, it's Peter who follows. As Jesus enters the courtroom, Peter enters the courtyard. And there's a fire in the middle... And a small group has gathered around... To warm themselves... And Peter quietly sits down among them... And then a slave girl... Of no importance... Sees Peter and recognizes him... She points out that he's... One of Jesus' disciples... And and Peter denies even knowing... Jesus... Two more... Eventually join the chorus... That they recognize him as one of the disciples... And twice more Peter denies any affiliation with Jesus or the disciples. As the third denial falls off of his lips, two things happen. First, a rooster crows, fulfilling Jesus' warning that before the rooster crowed, Peter would deny him three times. As that rooster crowed, how those words must have rushed back to him. I think most of us today don't get how common roosters' crows are. Come spend a night at our house. Peter would have heard roosters crowing every day for the rest of his life, and every time he did, this moment would have rushed back to him. But the second thing that happened is far worse at least for Peter because as that rooster crowed and that third denial fell from his lips from across the courtyard in the middle of a trial Jesus looked over at Peter and caught his eye as if to say yes I know no words needed to be spoken Peter knew what that gaze meant his Lord knew That Peter had denied him in his Lord's moment of greatest need. He had abandoned his Lord. He He had left him alone without a friend or an ally. He had broken his promise. And can you imagine how he must have felt at that moment? Just hours earlier, he debated with the other disciples about who's the greatest. He stood up as if to shame everyone else and boasted that even if everyone else falls away, he will remain true. He had tried to comfort Jesus, to assure Jesus that it's okay, Peter's here. And now? And now he sees only his own weakness, failure, and unfaithfulness they say a chain is only as strong as its weakest link if you have a big chain full of thick thick brackets and you have one paper clip holding two of those together you've got a problem If any of Peter's eternity rests on his strength, his obedience, his righteousness, if he serves as any link in the chain of his salvation, how could there be any hope? He couldn't even stand under the scrutiny of a slave girl. How must he have felt at that moment? What kind of doubts must have filled his heart and his mind? What must have happened to his confidence then? Every one of us is tempted to insert ourselves into salvation. When we compare ourselves to others and we and we think ourselves better, we, we look at ourselves when things are going well and, and we think we we understand why God loves us, because we're truly devoted. It's easy at, at those moments to find confidence and comfort in our lives and our obedience and our devotion. But what happens when we, like Peter, find ourselves turning again to our sin? Those angry outbursts, the, the sharp words that, that wound one of Christ's lambs. When we, when we seek comfort not in Him, but in, in alcohol or, or drugs or flirtatious behavior or pornography when times get hard and, and, and we see just how weak our resolve truly is how quickly does that confidence come crashing down because we know a chain is only as strong as its weakest link and when our confidence for eternity is, is built in how good we are that confidence comes crashing down when we see our goodness exposed as a facade and then it's then that we ask what hope is there so let's read the last section going back to the beginning verse 39 through 46 and he came out and went as was his custom to the mount of olives and the disciples followed him and when he came to the place he said to them pray that you may not enter into temptation And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. I wanted to deal with Judas and Peter first before I dealt with Jesus' prayer on the Mount of Olives because he knew what was coming when he went to pray. We need to know what's coming as we read about his prayer. He has told his disciples that both of these things would happen. And as they left the upper room, uh, as they climbed the Mount of Olives, he told his disciples to pray lest they fall into temptation. He knew what was about to take place. He, he knew he was about to be betrayed by Judas. And he knew he was about to be abandoned by Peter. He knew he would be arrested and led away. And he knew what would, he, what would follow what we'll see in the coming weeks. And he took none of this lightly. It pained him greatly. The weight of eternity is resting on his shoulders. And how he longed for it to be taken away. He was about to bear the greatest anguish and pain the world had ever seen. And he was going to do it alone. But he was not willing to run from it. Because to do so, to, to run from what he had been called to, would mean betraying us. It would mean abandoning us. It would mean leaving us alone to deal with our sin. Because without him we have no hope No one else can save us and we certainly can't save ourselves. No one else can bring hope. Jesus alone can save us and he must save us alone without our help because a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. If he let us help, if if he left us responsible for any part, the smallest part, we would mess it up. And as he prayed alone, he was giving us a glimpse of how he would accomplish our salvation. Abandoned, betrayed, and alone. As much as he wanted to be delivered from the coming pain, he was unwilling to be delivered if it would jeopardize our salvation. Father, if you are willing to remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It's as if he's saying, Father, only remove my burden if it's the right thing to do. If it doesn't jeopardize my people. Don't just do it to spare me if it means losing them. What could drive someone to pray like that? What could lead someone to be willing to endure betrayal and abandonment in order to show kindness, mercy, and salvation to those who were once His enemies. It's love. And it's love alone. The world has never seen a greater act of love, and it never will, than what takes place in those hours. And that love accomplished something amazing. Because through those hours of darkness, that moment of surrender, when Jesus allowed his enemies to triumph over him for a time, when he let those closest to him betray him and abandon him, through all of that, he paid our debt, he silenced the grave, and he accomplished our salvation. And he did it alone. There is a reason the Reformers were so committed to that word, alone. Grace alone. Faith alone. Christ alone. Because if we insert ourselves, we'll mess it up. But Jesus, He can accomplish what we cannot. He can do it all. He was willing to suffer whatever was necessary to do it. And he won't accept our help because that would only jeopardize our eternities. He has to do it alone. He is willing to be abandoned by all so that he might not abandon us when we need him the most. In our passage, we find Christ alone because Christ alone can save. None of that is to say he doesn't care about what we do. He's not not saying that we should just do whatever pleases us and not worry because he'll take care of everything. If that was the case, he would not have told his disciples to pray that they might not fall into temptation twice. He doesn't want us to mess up, but he knows we will. We don't want to mess up, but we know we will. We will. And it's then that we need to remember those words that we heard in our declaration of pardon from the Apostle John. My little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The goal is not to sin, but like Peter, there will be times of failure. And the question is what do we do when those times come? And it's there we we need to see the difference between Peter and Judas. Peter lamented his failure and he sought the Lord. Judas hated himself, tried to fix everything, and then punished himself. One response is humble, the other is arrogant. Peter knew that his hope was in Jesus alone. Judas looked to himself for rescue and found none. Peter serves as as a model for us how to respond when we sin. He wept bitterly. His sin crushed him. It grieved him. It led him to despair of his his own goodness and righteousness and, and to trust in Jesus Christ alone. And that's the mark of a true believer, of a Christian. I need to ask, does your sin make you weep? Does it break your heart? If it does, I have good news. You have a faithful Savior who has suffered all that you deserve so that you might be forgiven. You are loved, you are forgiven. All of this is profoundly demonstrated for us in the Lord's Supper. We have one piece of bread and one cup of wine. And both represent Jesus' body and blood sacrificed in death on the cross. Do you notice what's missing? Something representing us. Because at the Lord's table, we see Jesus and only Jesus. Yes, we see benefits for us. Because if we're found in Jesus, we have his work on our behalf. But he alone accomplishes salvation. He alone can save and he must save alone. As we come, we confess that our hope is in him alone. And in confessing that, we find a faithful Savior who is able to save us completely. Praise be to God. I'd like to ask our Elder Dave uh, to come up as we prepare to receive this gift this morning. Please bow with me in prayer. Our wonderful Savior, we we take comfort in you alone there is nothing we could add to what you have done and to think there was would be the height of arrogance and the height of folly we take comfort in you alone for you alone can save we thank you for your love that you did not run from the cross that you were unwilling to save yourself and abandon us help us to fight temptation when we, and when we fail teach us to weep and to run to you and to again find grace full and free Amen.